from Advance Local and Meadowlark Media, I'm Sarah Gannam. This is the mayor of Maple Avenue. Chapter 3. Monday, December 11th, 2017. Mom and Dad. Hey, how are things going? I'm doing good so far. It's a pretty nice place, actually. It's really nice here. I start groups tomorrow morning. I had to meet with a bunch of people today, sign papers. The Presidium group paid in full for my treatment already. I guess for 30 days, it costs $30,000. I haven't met my counselor yet. They said I would meet them sometime tomorrow. I'm in the detox house until probably tomorrow. They put everyone in there when they first come in, they said. I met my therapist today. He seems nice. He's gonna help me address a lot of my problems with me and help me to not bottle up things anymore and attack my problems in a healthy way. For a man in his 20s, Sean Sinisi really did not have much of an internet footprint. He didn't post much about himself or even use email, but he was a pretty prolific writer. The weekends are laid back here. I have a lot of free time to watch football and hockey. He wrote letters to his parents, to friends, and to girlfriends in rehab facilities. He wasn't shy about writing notes about his stays, reflecting on his life, and what he wanted for his future. He often wrote about his family, how he felt supported by them, how they were always there for him. Thank you for all the new clothing, by the way. I like them. The only issue is the new pair of sweatpants. <laughs> They're a tad bit too tight on my butt. But uh, I'm going to start going to the gym, too. I went and looked at it today. It actually looks like a really nice gym. So I'm going to try and take full advantage of that. These are excerpts from his first letter home after checking into a private rehab facility called The Ranch. All the staff are really nice here, so that's a plus. I know I seemed down before I left the country that night. I think I was just nervous to come and have to truly open up about this all for the first time ever, but it's not bad here. It's a small community, so that's good, because I hate talking in front of people. I get nervous and anxious, and my face turns beet red. I'm going to take this serious and get the help that I need to live a normal life. Sean Sinisi entered the ranch on December 10th, 2017. Having just gotten out of jail, with a new year and a birthday just around the corner, Sean was eager for a new start. On his intake form, he said he was feeling helpless, hopeless, and he repeatedly wrote about how he has buried the fact that he was abused and he wanted to finally talk. For a moment, the first in quite a while, Marianne and Mike breathed a sigh of relief. It appeared as if Sean was, as he said in his first letter home, finding the old, loving Sean that everyone knows and loves once again. It was an affirmation of Marianne's dogged determination. She had been anxious to transition Sean out of that state-funded rehab system and into a more specialized tier of treatment. She had done that by enlisting the help of attorney Andy Shubin, who brought Sean's case to the attention of Penn State University. 
One of the most complex and disturbing things about Sandusky's crimes is that they couldn't have happened without Penn State. The university gave him access to the locker rooms where many of the assaults happened. It gave him the power he needed to pull off his decades-long abuses. It gave him legitimacy. It gave him cover. And so when Sandusky went to jail and the Second Mile charity went under, Penn State became the obvious place for Sandusky victims to sue. Within the first few years, the university spent nearly $100 million settling dozens of claims. And state college attorney Andy Shubin handled a bunch of those cases. After Shubin met with Sean Sinisi in the Blair County Jail, Shubin told Marianne that he could immediately tell that Sean was a victim and he was willing to take on the case. But Marianne said that she wasn't looking for a drawn-out legal fight and a monetary settlement. What she wanted, what she needed, was something more urgent. Shubin knew that money was not ever in the picture for me. The main concern was just getting him treatment first. I said, I don't even care about a lawsuit. I don't even want him to have money. And that's when he said to me, well, you do realize that's part of this. And I said, but he could just have money to get treatment, the best care there is for as long as it takes. That's, that's all I care about. And so Shubin went to Penn State with that request. It turns out it wasn't foreign to them. They had other victims who were struggling in the same way. And so they sent the Sinises to the Presidium, a consulting firm out of Texas. Penn State had hired the founder, a man named Dr. Richard Dengel, to be the intermediary between the victims and the university. Think of him as quality assurance. Dengel provided expertise in victim evaluation and made recommendations as to where victims should be placed for treatment. He used his relationships to make sure that placement went smoothly, and he did ongoing evaluation of the quality of the treatment received, when Penn State paid for treatment facilities, it was based on Dengel's feedback, on his expertise. The first step was an evaluation. A psychologist named Cynthia McNabb went to the Blair County Jail to talk to Sean. She wrote in her assessment that Sean is consistent with Sandusky's victims and that Sean had not told anyone about the abuse until recently, although he reports that he knew something was wrong. Together, Dangle and McNabb told Marianne they recommended that Sean go to a top-tier rehab facility in Arizona that specializes in trauma-based addiction, a facility called The Meadows. So Michael and I buy a suitcase, and we have it all packed for Arizona weather and went through the process of what's he allowed to have, not allowed to have. We're ready. At so this point, stuff. our... All of your hopes sort of hanging on him going out oh, there to the yes. meadows? <laughs> Absolutely. It's like you're thinking this is your big break, that you have been waiting all these years to finally get something. This is precisely the type of counseling Marianne had been waiting for, the type of counseling that the state services could not and did not provide. The Meadows was glamorous. It boasted patients like Whitney Houston and Kevin Spacey, as you can imagine, it was the type of treatment that was so far out of reach for so many because it was so prohibitively expensive. In 2017, a 45-day stay at the Meadows cost $58,000. 
And up until this point, obviously, you could not afford to send him there. So the only way he could go is if Penn State paid for it. Yes, absolutely. So we're waiting, and he's anxious, and we go in and visit him. You know, we could— Did he want to go? Oh, yeah. He was excited to go, and, of course, he wanted out of the jail, and he's, you know, he was ready. And and then we get a phone call after he was packed. They changed their mind that Dr. Dangle, he did. He told them that he was wrong, that Penn State has now decided that they weren't going to do that. They weren't going to send anybody out of the state of PA. Mm-hmm. That If we wanted to have him treated, he had to find somewhere here to go to. Emails between Dangle and McNabb show that the Tuesday before Thanksgiving in 2017, Dangle confirmed that Sean would go to the Meadows for 45 days, paid for by Penn State. But the next day, he wrote, Greetings, Dr. McNabb. I want to give you an update. At this point, the patient is not approved for payment for this service. If we get any other relevant information, I will keep you in the loop. Meanwhile, I hope you have a pleasant holiday break. Cynthia McNabb typed a reply. What happened? I understood from your email yesterday there was authorization for a maximum of 45 days treatment. What has changed? On Thanksgiving Day, Dangle responded, I'm sorry for the change of plans. I am not involved in the case. Attorneys are involved. And Cynthia McNabb replied with a single phrase, I don't understand. Later on, the Sinesis were told that Sean would instead be approved to attend a facility just outside of Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, the ranch. Of course, you had to tell Sean that he was crushed because he was ready to go. We had all his stuff ready to go, so I had to change everything up, everything that I had bought, unpack the suitcase because you're going to Arizona. But now, guess what? You're not. You're going to stay in Pennsylvania, which was freezing. Several people who I've spoken to during the course of my reporting, people who have had direct contact with Dengel and the Presidium, told me that there was a sudden and obvious shift around this time in what kind of treatment Penn State was approving for Sandusky victims. Treatment at the Meadows had been approved several times before, but there was vocal leadership at the university suddenly pushing back because of how expensive it was. Just a few months prior, one Penn State trustee named Al Lord told a reporter he was, quote, running out of sympathy for 35-year-old so-called victims. The sudden change in policy had trickled down to Sean, and as Dangle's email indicated, it was out of his hands. So instead of packing for Arizona and the Meadows, the Sinises switched out Sean's clothes from summer attire to winter, and he was on his way to the ranch. And because they had been so desperate and then so hopeful about going to a place like the Meadows, they tried to treat this new plan as just a minor change-up. After all, Sean was still going to get treatment. And for the first time, his rehab experience was what you might expect. He was getting one-on-one counseling four times a week, and in addition, group therapy. He was opening up, Notes from his first session give an insight into what he was dealing with. Sleep, he told the therapist, is hard. I dream about it. I can see him vividly in my dreams. On its surface, the ranch was a far cry from the state-funded facilities that Sean had spent the last five years bouncing between, mostly because this place promised to address Sean's trauma, his sexual abuse, 
alongside his addiction. Records show he was placed in a dual diagnosis program, addressing his addiction along with depression, anxiety, flashbacks, guilt, shame, anger, and a lack of trust. Sean was also under the care of a medical doctor and a psychiatrist, and he was making friends. Probably ate every meal with him. Um, There was a group of probably four or five of us that sat together at every meal. Jack Green was a police officer at the time, who checked into the ranch shortly after Sean because he had turned to alcohol in his struggle with job-related PTSD. Instantly liked the kid. You know, I'm I'm 50-some years old. He's in his 20s, and just a really nice kid. Just in, enjoyed talking to him in between the group therapies and the sessions and everything else. Um, we sort of gravitated to each other, and we'd talk and and you know joke around and carry on. Um, he was a jokester. He was a you know seemed like a pretty fun loving guy. He was he was pretty up on current events. He was you know well aware of what was going on in the world. I mean, it, he was just I don't know. Just we just enjoyed talking together. True to its name, the ranch is a sprawling campus perched on a hill overlooking the Susquehanna River. The grounds include an archery field, an obstacle course, and a meditation space with large standing rocks. It was super nice. They they had a big giant main building which had a huge, like, I don't don't want to call it a living room, but a big giant central room. And then that room had a huge fireplace and probably a dozen couches around the fireplace. And um, there wasn't a whole lot of TV interaction, but... uh, off of that room, there was a pool table, and then off of that room, they had like uh, arts and crafts room. They had a yoga room, and then further down, they you branched out to a hallway, and then they had probably I don't know four or five different rooms where they did the groups, and they were just big, giant, open rooms with carpet and comfy chairs, but nothing else, no no crazy furniture, and then there was a really nice dining hall, like cafeteria style. Um, the food was amazing, I will say that. That's good. We had coffee, no soft drinks. It was all uh, juice and milk. And the coffee machines were only on from like 10, I think 10 a.m. to like 4. For some reason, they were really against us drinking coffee. But yeah, I mean, it was it was super nice. And then it was sort of like a campus setting. Um, then they had these cottages sort of spread out around. And like I said... You know, like I said, they were they were male, you know, males on one side of the campus, females on the other. The houses, I think, if I remember right, were four bedrooms each, so two guys in each bedroom. Some of the bedrooms had three, but that not in my house. And then inside the house, the house had a common area, like a big living room where you could, you know, chill out. Um, and there was a TV in in that living room. And if again, if you had the right level, if you were behaving yourself and then you could get tv privileges at some point but that generally took about two weeks to get those two. Oh, so there were like levels that you could achieve to get certain things when you came in you were sort of on lockdown you really weren't allowed to do anything actually when you first come in you're you're in detox you know where you're locked down by yourself or i spent four days in detox but you know i, I really wasn't in the mood to talk to anyone at that point um the hair the heroin abusers they they go through detox a lot faster the process takes a lot quicker to get out of the body 
So they're they're generally pushed in the general population, you know, after about a day or two. But again, th- th- then you sort of work up, and and you work up by you know attendance and participation and following the rules, and and you know when you get that, then you get this, you get leveled up, is what they call it, and and the staff and your therapist are the ones who decide when you get leveled up, and then that once you get leveled up, then you're allowed to go off campus, then you're allowed to. You know, watch some TV at night. Your loud phone calls. Um, you know, just just some minor quality of life issues. Sean also befriended a staff member, a man who was also sexually assaulted as a boy. They struck up a relationship and would talk sometimes in the mornings. Sean was even getting more comfortable talking about it in group therapy, something that he had never done before. He talked about it one day in group, and that was the first time that that he had even brought that up to anybody. At meals, we don't sit around and talk about our substance abuse and talk, you know, talk about our abuses in our lives. We, you know, it wasn't like that at all. Jack said the program kept participants busy, leaving very little time for goofing off or getting off track. There is no downtime. We got up at 6.30 and had breakfast, and then... They kept us busy all day, and then we had a break for lunch. After dinner, we went back to, it was the only time during the day we were allowed to go back to our cow, our, our, our little cottages, they called them. But at night, we would go off campus and we'd go to local AA meetings or you know something along those lines. And if there was no meetings to attend, they would hold an AA meeting at, at the facility. So yeah, we, we had very little downtime. And then when we got back, we were allowed about an hour to write home, to call home. If, if you had phone privileges, you were allowed to call home. And then it was it was bedtime, I believe, at like 10. So they kept us pretty pretty filled all day. What were you guys doing? I mean, that's, that's gotta be, because it actually sounds exhausting. What was the schedule like? Oh, I don't, I mean, it wasn't all horrible. It was, you know, therapy, we do like hour long sessions, take a break, and then an hour long session. And the sessions were broken up to, you know, it might be an hour on codependency, it might be an hour on substance abuse. And then they'd throw in like a half hour of yoga, you know, they'd throw in a half hour of arts and crafts, just some other things to sort of take your mind off of things and, and do something silly. Again, I'm in my 50s, there was probably 20 or five or so males there when I was there, you know, only about 10 or so were my age and the rest were probably all in their 20s. Um, The younger 20-year-olds didn't take it maybe as serious and weren't as open in groups as the older guys were. And I think that was just the maturity level. What about Sean? Do you think he was taking it seriously? I think he was taking it seriously. I I would label him though as as shy, shy and quiet. Um, I don't think he shared as much in group as as others did. Um, again, I don't you know I didn't know much about his past. I don't know how how dark it was. I mean, I I did get some insight towards the end that it wasn't so great. Did you tell people what's going on now? Hmm. Why I'm here. I still feel ashamed about it from what Jerry did. And that's why I said I didn't want people to know. I know family is and will be very supportive. And that's just my thinking. And feel that I will be judged from what happened to me when I know deep down I won't be. But 
That's just what I think in my head. And that's why I bottle it all up and don't want to be around family. And I need to quit thinking and stop doing it before my family turns their backs to me because they're tired of the old song and dance I keep doing, getting everyone's hopes up for me to succeed, to only disappoint them. And it's time for me to take this serious and get this right this time and take full advantage of this blessing I was given. About three weeks after Sean arrived, Mike and Marianne went for a visit. Well, when we first drove up, yeah, you know, we were were impressed about it. It was very nice, and it was kind of in like a woodsy setting. It was a nice-looking place, (laughs) and it was way up on the top, top, top of a mountain, freezing cold because it was right at, it was between Christmas and New Year's. So, you know, I wasn't sure what to think because, of course, I'm not basing it on what the place looked like, but it, it seemed like a nice looking building. We were allowed to bring him a Christmas present. And when we walked in, he looked good. He looked healthier. He looked very happy and uh, like almost over, over happy to see us. I remember that he gave us both a hug and he hugged Marianne like for a long time and kind of picked her up and stuff. Because he was six foot three (laughs) and was excited to see us, he said, and he just seemed happy, like a, a great weight was lifted. So we both took that as a very positive. I mean, he and I were close, but he just, looked happy for the first time, I think, in a a long, long time. The family had a session scheduled with Sean's therapist to bring everyone up to speed and give his parents some time to ask questions. They said something about him being on the medication for restless leg syndrome and stuff. And I'm thinking, why? Well, do you think that he knew what to ask for in order to get drugs? Like, do you think he knew? Sure. By that age, yeah. Yeah, he's street smart. Oh, yes. Sean's medical records from the ranch note that substance abuse has to stop completely before meds or therapy will be effective for PTSD and depression. But then, just a few lines later, it says that he was prescribed two kinds of pain pills. One was Requip, a drug often used for restless leg syndrome. When I googled Requip and addiction, immediately I saw a bunch of warnings about how it can cause intense urges, including gambling, eating, and sexual compulsion. One warning says, you may not be able to control these urges. I asked Dr. Niraj Gandotra, the chief medical officer of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, and he confirmed it. That's a known side effect. It is a dopamine agonist, which means that it acts on the dopamine system. The manufacturer, GlaxoSmithKline, decided in 2019 to discontinue Requip. But this was late 2017. The other pain pill that they prescribed at the ranch is, you guessed it, gabapentin, noting once again that it's for Sean's back pain. Marianne became doubtful of the ranch's ability to place Sean on a stable path to recovery. As long as Sean had consistent access to opioids and their substitutes, Marianne could not ever be sure that Sean could return to his old self. And then, Sean got a toothache. 
for years he had struggled with the health of his teeth. Not surprising given the combination of street drugs and prison, where dental care is, let's say, less than ideal. And he had a legitimate tooth problem when he was at the ranch, you think? Yeah, because I think when he was in the state facilities. In jail, yeah. He had several pulled, because obviously they're not going to give them a root canal. (laughs) And there was a time that he said that one of them, they just drilled it out and they would put a filling in it just to get him until he was done. So I think that that tooth definitely probably needed attention and was never dealt with because it was like a temporary fix. The nerve was exposed when he was down there is what they told me. The nerve was exposed when he was at the ranch. Yeah, and that's what the dentist said. Do they fix it or do they just give him medicine to make the pain go away? Well, initially they didn't even tell me about it until I had the phone call from his counselor. And she said a drug's name that they had given it to him. The, the, the doctor here, because he was in so much pain, the Tylenol was not helping. He put him on and she said it, but I don't think I really understood what she said or she gave me a generic. And then she goes, and now he's really upset. And so he's kind of having a meltdown. They gave him Tramadol instead. And he's upset by that and pretty angry. Why was he upset that he was getting Tramadol? Because what I found out next then when I said to her, well, what did you say they gave him? And she said, well, doctor gave him for five days then. She said, Zaboxone. Well, as soon as she said that, I just said, wait a minute. What? Suboxone is a drug that's used to treat opioid addiction. It has a somewhat controversial reputation in the world of drug rehab. Suboxone works by tightly binding to the same brain receptors as opioids, therefore preventing cravings and allowing many people to transition back to a life free from addiction. But Suboxone treatment is still controversial. Not everyone agrees that it's the best path to recovery. And at the time, Marianne was one of those people who was skeptical, partly because she knew Sean had been abusing Suboxone. At his last state-funded rehab, it turned up in his system during a drug test. And that time, he admitted he bought it on the street and he was abusing it. Here at the ranch, it was prescribed legally by a doctor. Marianne recalls a contentious conversation she had with staff. He gave him Zaboxone for five days and he hadn't even seen a dentist yet? And she said, well, yes, because he just kept complaining And they kind of thought maybe, you know, just because of being, you know, you know that when you're a drug user, the Tylenol and Advil and and those types of things don't seem to be able to cut the pain for you as much. And he had an exposed nerve. The drug Sean was prescribed was actually Subutex. It contains one of the main ingredients in Suboxone called buprenorphine. All these drugs, brand and generic names and then different variations, it can get kind of complex and confusing. But if you stick with me for a minute, I'm going to tell you what you need to understand in this particular circumstance. Suboxone is a drug made up of two other drugs. Buprenorphine, which is a partial opioid. It's a drug that acts like an opioid even though it's not fully one. And then naloxone, which is an opioid antagonist, meaning it blocks the effects of opioids. Subutex only contains buprenorphine, not the opioid blocker. So is it possible he didn't have as much pain in his tooth as it says on these documents and that it was just an excuse to try to get this stuff? Definitely possible. 
I mean, he, I think they even put in there at one point that they felt, someone felt he was drug seeking. But I'm thinking, well, hello. <laughs> yes, he hasn't been there for eight months. He, how long has he been there? So yeah, I would typically think that someone's going to try to get it, that's had it as long as he had, that he's going to still want it. So if officials recognized it as an attempt at drug seeking, then why did they give him the drug? We can't know for sure because the ranch declined to comment on the subject, noting that they are no longer owned by the same company that was in charge back when Sean was a patient, and so they don't have a comment on prior care. What we do know is that the doctor who prescribed it, he also had a private medical addiction practice outside of the ranch facility. According to his LinkedIn profile, Dr. Christopher Davis was simultaneously working on several jobs as medical director at the ranch, at a methadone clinic, and then also running his own private practice where he advertised Suboxone maintenance therapy. Records show Dr. Davis began talking to Sean about using Suboxone as a way to slowly taper and stay sober. The conversation happened on December 26th just a little more than two weeks after Sean arrived at the ranch. In his notes, Davis wrote that he told Sean he would run into problems taking Suboxone because a lot of sober living facilities won't allow residents to be on it. But he suggested one sober house that does and says, You can come to my practice to manage his Suboxone and psychiatric beds. If you can find a sober living that would take him on Suboxone and an outpatient program that will let him be on maintenance, you can follow up with me after discharge to start maintenance through my private practice. The ranch was drug testing its residents, and toxicology reports show that Sean was negative for all drugs until that same week when the main ingredient in Suboxone, buprenorphine, showed up. The paperwork helps piece together the story. According to the ranch records, the very same day that Dr. Davis and Sean began talking about Suboxone, it's the same day that Sean reported that he bit into a pretzel and broke a tooth filling. Dr. Davis examined him two days later and found that he did have a partial break of the filling on one of his left molars. Davis prescribed Subutex, noting in the records there was a risk of having a mild withdrawal. I was angry as hell because I thought, you know what? He just wants another patient because Sean's going to be down in that area. So come to my clinic and you can get back on Zaboxone. That's how my husband and I viewed it. Marianne noted that Dr. Davis's website mentioned that he did not take insurance and patients were required to self-pay. Is that a conflict of interest to be prescribing on the inside something that you will personally potentially benefit from on the outside? I asked Dr. Gandotra. The question of conflict of interest would arise if the patient felt that there was no other option available. I can't comment about the case, but typically, and this is the way that most facilities should and do operate, if they are proposing some other treatment post-discharge from their place, they should provide the patient with, at the very least, a list of potential providers or facilities where they could follow up at, which may or may not include their own. But the patient should have the knowledge and information that there are other options available. And 
should be have reasonable access to explore those other options as well. The example that I might give is if I'm running a residential facility and then I'm going to transfer the patient upon discharge to an outpatient level of care. I may have my own outpatient clinic that I could refer them to, but I need to at least give the patient the information that there are other facilities available that provide the same service and perhaps one of them may be more convenient, either by cost, location, hours of you know operation. Uh, there's lots of factors that the patient may be considering outside of you know keeping things the same in terms of the same place. Jennifer Storm, the former Pennsylvania State victim witness advocate turned author and advocate, well, she was a little more blunt. You're supposed to be there helping people recover, and and you just sabotage this person's success, right? And three weeks of success is great, but that's like the tip, 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 tip of the iceberg. It takes so long to regulate and stabilize an individual, especially when you have medication involved. That doctor should be held accountable. Dr. Davis no longer works for the ranch, but his LinkedIn profile says that he's still in private practice and that he is the medical director at a different clinic owned by Pyramid Healthcare. Officials there declined to let me speak to him, and when I reached out several times privately, he didn't call me back. Sean was nearing the end of his 30-day stay at the ranch, and from what Marianne could tell, he hadn't truly been sober for very much of it. She felt the promise of this fancy rehab facility atop a hill slipping through her fingertips. I wanted to ask for more time. I actually went to Dr. Dangle myself and explained what happened. He was pretty irate and said, what's the matter with them? Dr. Richard Dangle was the founder of the Presidium, and in his position as a middleman between Penn State and victims like Sean, he played a pivotal role in treatment. In no uncertain terms, Dangle held the purse strings. It was Dengel who approved the $30,000 payment for Sean's stay, and so it was Dengel who had to approve any extension. Because he said, what did they giving him that for? And I just said, I, I guess tooth pain. And he just kind of said something like, well, that's like letting a kid loose in a candy store, isn't it now? We don't know exactly how Richard Dengel felt about Suboxone treatment for heroin addicts. The Presidium declined to answer specific questions or talk to me for this podcast, and Dengel himself died in March of 2021 of Lewy body dementia. What we do know for sure is that after learning about the Subutex prescription, Dengel approved payment for Sean to spend seven extra days at the ranch. The thing is, Dr. Davis's original idea to put Sean on Suboxone was not necessarily an evil plan to make more money. It was probably rooted in good intentions, and in science, too. Sean, at this point, had been addicted to heroin since he was 18 years old, almost eight years. And quitting cold turkey, quitting even without a short taper, that's not really realistic for someone who has been addicted as long as Sean. Up until maybe about 15, 20 years ago, the majority of these rehab facilities and recovery networks were 
managed and run by individuals who were in recovery, who followed an abstinence-based model. Dr. Gandotra gave me a little background on how the industry view of Suboxone treatment is evolving. It was a long time before people started to really buy into the idea of medication-assisted treatment and the harm reduction principles that are, are really tied to that. Uh, and I, I think that there was this feeling that if I got through it without medication, then you should too, and that's the only way. Uh, I think the field is changing and certainly much more uh, receptive at this point, but there still are a lot of uh, stakeholders in terms of residential facility directors and CEOs that feel this way because their own path did not include that or for whatever reason they still view this medication you know, in a negative light that the person is not truly uh, drug free so the recovery is incomplete. In fact with people with opiate addiction one of the best tools that we have is opiates. That's Dr. William Miller again, the researcher from the University of New Mexico. Buprenorphine was uh, was developed and is often used in combination with, uh, with an opiate blocker. And actually, the data are pretty solid on using those. In fact, I, I think it's unethical not to have it as an option in a treatment program for people with opiates, but it has to be well-managed. Uh, and, and it can be. I don't know the circumstances of this particular person, but, but it is not at all unusual to prescribe and use an opiate as a maintenance medication, and people can be on these for decades. The reason Marianne was not sold on this path for Sean at the time is that he admitted to her he was relying on Suboxone because it was so easy to get. In different facilities, he'd come right out and say, what did you expect? It's right there. It's everywhere, Mom. It's in the place. I've only detoxed for five days. What did you think I'm going to do? Plus, the Subutex that Sean ended up receiving at the ranch, it wasn't used for a long-term taper. It was a short-term fix, and it didn't have the opioid blocker that Suboxone contains. Essentially, it's just a pain pill. And when the facility abruptly took it away and switched Sean to another drug, tramadol, Sean became really unsettled. Sean got really agitated. And now he's really upset, and so he's kind of having a meltdown. They gave him tramadol instead, and he's upset by that and pretty angry. From there, his whole entire momentum at the ranch changed. His daily progress notes rapidly switched from compliments about his attitude to concern over how much he's focused on getting that subutex again. It's like a light switch turned. His behavior change, according to the notes, is drastic. Sean spoke about his tooth and how he cannot eat and that people may be thinking that he is trying to get pain pills. The doctor said he is not swelling and does not appear to be in pain and he is just opioid-seeking. 
on January 3rd. He is mad that the subutex was not ordered, unwilling to try ibuprofen or Tylenol or anything else ordered for pain. He has a follow-up appointment on 1-12-18 for a root canal. He told a doctor he was prescribed subutex for pain and asked for more. On January 4th. Nurse gave him Tramadol. His therapist and his doc told him that he cannot request Suboxone because they do not want him to be dependent on it, and they told him that it is unacceptable to yell at the nursing staff when they do not give him the medication he wants. On January 5th. Gave him Tramadol for tooth pain. By January 9th, Sean was sleeping through group therapy instead of participating. On the 10th, he was slurring his words. On the 11th, he's caught committing a pretty serious indiscretion, one that could have gotten him kicked out. Sean was caught having sex with a woman who was also seeking treatment at the ranch. But they let him stay. And they kept prescribing tramadol. On the 15th, when he was discharged, his notes say exactly what I've just laid out for you. I'm going to read it. Sean went from being invested and doing well to disrespecting the rules and regulations. It became apparent that he was trying to manipulate the doctor, therapist, and other staff in an effort to control his future plans post-discharge. Sean did eventually get his tooth pulled, and it happened on what ended up being his very last day at the ranch. It was meant to be his second-to-last day, but for an unknown reason, the facility decided to discharge him right to the dentist's office. And she just said, well, because we just think it's, you know, rather than him start a night here again and back, he might as well just get settled in and everything. So I don't really know whether it was because they knew he was coming back. This moment really stands out to me. When I look at the timeline of Sean's life, two things become clear. The first is that Sean had so many failed attempts at finishing rehab programs that leaving the ranch one day early probably had a lot more meaning for him than we might imagine. The second thing is that after his stay at the ranch, Sean never has a period of sobriety that lasts more than a few weeks. It's not all because of what happened there. There are plenty of other things that contribute. But as Marianne put it, the ranch took him in, opened up a very painful wound, and then spit him out abruptly. And while he was there, they gave him a drug that he was trying to shake and then abruptly cut him off from it. And on top of all of that, they wouldn't even give him the satisfaction of completion. That, of course, is the opposite of the mission of the facility, the opposite of the reason that the Senesis were told to send him there. Looking back, Marianne wonders if maybe things would have been different had they gone directly to the meadows as originally planned. As Sean packed his bags, Marianne called one more time to make sure that his experience would be accurately recorded. I went after them. I called and I just explained how angry I was over the money that was spent there, that it was wasted, and that we are pretty much back to square one. The manager of compliance and quality for Elements Behavioral Health, which at the time was the parent company of the ranch, responded to assure her that appropriate follow-up actions, including training reinforcement, had been taken. In the email dated three weeks after Sean checked out, an official wrote, It may interest you to know that Dr. Davis is no longer an employee of the ranch or associated with Elements Behavioral Health at this time. 
the leadership team at the Ranch Pennsylvania were active participants in our internal investigation of the concerns you brought up and will use this information to further train and develop their staff and improve. Okay, so it's January 15th, 2018. I'm at the ranch. But before Sean really checked out of the ranch, he had to do one more thing. I'm here with Sean Sanisi and with Jill Curley, his mental health treatment provider, and we're conducting an interview. Meet with his new attorney, Andy Shubin, and provide a taped conversation to put on the record for the first time what he endured at the hands of Sandusky. I just want to make sure it's okay that I take this interview, Sean? Yes. Okay. All right. So... The Mayor of Maple Avenue is written and produced by me, Sarah Gannam, in partnership with Penn Live and Meadowlark Media. Additional writing was done by Carl Scott at Meadowlark Media. We could not have done this project without funding from the Fund for Investigative Journalism and the Pulitzer Center. Our associate producers are Tori Whitten, Sarah Ruberg, and Ethan Schreier. Additional reporting was done by Charlie Thompson, Aaron Kasinitz, and Andrea Keckley. The executive producers are Kate Barron, Burke Noel, and Teresa Bonner for PenLive, and Carl Scott for Meadowlark Media. The Mayor of Maple Avenue was edited by James Sullivan and Gabriel Rojas at WUFT in Gainesville, Florida, by Jake Gloth at Cedar Production, Martin Boutros at Penn Studios, and Stephen Smith at Meadowlark Media. Sound design was done by Jesse Pearlstein, Alexander Ritchie, Martin Boutros, and Ryan Ross-Smith. Our mixing and mastering engineer was Robin Wise. Our theme music and much of the score was composed by Pete Redman, with additional music by Alexander Ritchie, Jesse Pearlstein, and Ryan Ross-Smith. Our team also includes production assistants Megan Lavie-Heaton, Joe Hermit, Sarah Tantawi, photographer Sean Simmers, and consultants John Hammontree and Neville Elder. Our legal counsel is Richard Bernstein. The podcast cover art was designed by Andy Ross. All of the voiceovers you hear in this series are read directly from original documents, such as medical records, text messages, newspaper clips, and other documents made available to us by the Sinisi family and their attorneys at the law firm of Spencer Custer. The part of Sean Sinisi is voiced by James Sullivan. In addition, Megan Lavie-Heaton read the part of the counselor at the ranch, and Alexander Ritchie read the part of Dr. Christopher Davis. To see extras like slideshows, interactive spaces, and written transcripts, visit our website at www.themayorofmapleavenue.com.